Last time on SHOT. It's really hard for me to mark the exact date I came out of the closet, because it was a process. It's still a process. When you exist inside this norm, you don't see how my queerness affects everything that I do, and how I have to be conscious of my queerness at every turn. But while my mom may not have understood why I wouldn't get drunk with her in southern Indiana bars, she never once questioned the validity of my sexuality. So as Jack and I held my mom's hand 12 hours before her next surgery, I looked deep into his eyes and saw his despair. There was something I debated about telling her in this moment, something I had told very few people and had struggled to figure out how to tell my mom. When I was seven years old, I was molested. How I do believe I was affected most by the incident is that I think it informed the type of man I'm attracted to. It is my belief that if we show pedophiles that we understand their attraction is beyond their control, then we can work with them to find ways to detour their actions away from children. I think through this shooting, Jack and I found a balance we could finally maintain, and I wasn't willing to risk that for anything else. And I prayed to a god I hadn't spoken to in over a decade. I went into the waiting room and found the surgeon speaking to Kelly and Jack. Both were in tears. Both stood up to hug me. Both told me that she had made it through. My relationship with religion has always been a little flimsy. Growing up, my mom never told me what to believe, and there was no one in our family that was really that religious. I think some of them went to church on occasion, and I know some members were baptized and had their first communion. We'd pray before a meal, of course. But my siblings and I never did these things regularly when we'd be at home with Mom and Greg. Growing up in a heavy Christian community, I don't think I realized that my family's relationship with religion was different until I went to elementary school. St. Nicholas was a big tradition in the community, and kids would come to school a few weeks before Christmas saying that St. Nick had left them an early Christmas present. Obviously, any kid who feels like they are getting ripped off on Christmas presents is going to inquire. So I asked my mom why St. Nicholas didn't come to our house. She explained that our religion didn't do that. So I asked what religion we were. And she said Methodist because she was married in a Methodist church. That logic is still a little loose, but now having a label for it, I could grasp onto it. I went through elementary school confident in being a Methodist, even though I had no idea what that meant. My friends would take me to religion class at a Methodist church nearby on Wednesdays. And at school, we would get out of class for an hour every week to go to a religion in a church near the school. A lot of crafts and activities. I started to learn the ins and outs of the Bible pretty well. But I still felt different. My friends would pack church clothes when they spent the night for birthdays so that they could go to church the next day. I never did that. My friends started practicing for their confirmation. I definitely never did that. And my questions about the existence of God were met with weird glances. When I got a bit older, I inquired my mom more deeply. She revealed that she had a lot of questions and didn't necessarily believe in God, but in a higher being. That's when I realized my Methodist label was misguided and, well, just false. I was actually agnostic. I understood the world as ever-changing and constantly being discovered. And since I couldn't find physical proof for God, I chose to believe that they weren't real. 
I like to use the they pronoun for God since it's unlikely that they have a gender. And if they do, I'm pretty confident they're female. So agnostic fit better for me. Out of all the things I remember in my past, the moment I reached this decision and when I officially stopped going to religion is blurry to me. I'm thinking it was sometime in middle school. But with each year, I started to witness and dissect the issues I thought religion caused, the harm that it did, the way people would use Bible verses to attack minorities, the Christian martyrs who would cry oppression because Happy Holidays was on their coffee. And when I moved out of my hometown to New York City, it was very easy to dismiss religion as a toxic system in our society, followed by ignorant followers who didn't have a handle on their own inevitable death or have the capacity to understand our world as infinitely unknown. I started to target religion and religious people in unproductive ways. I would dismiss people's faith to feel elite and all-knowing. But when your mom wakes up from her second surgery after being shot, after you've been told to plan for death, after you just got done praying, religion isn't something you can just dismiss anymore. shot by her teenage son in an Evansville parking lot. It happened during the Black Friday rush. Craven was shot in the back and was taken to a local hospital for treatment. The family released a statement to us saying she raised five kids as a single parent, so she's very strong. There are four basic rules of gun safety that we talk about. And if you follow these rules, you're not going to have an accident. For every criminal killed in self-defense, 32 innocent people died, 78 guns were used in suicides, and two accidental deaths occurred. But if you don't do what's the right thing, you're not going to have, either you're not going to have a second amendment, you're not going to have much of it left, and you're not going to be able to protect yourselves, which you need. Welcome to Shot, a new podcast featuring intimate true stories of accidental shootings and their aftermath. This first season is called The Night My Brother Shot My Mom with My Ex-Boyfriend's Gun. This episode is going to be formatted a little differently today. While I'm going to continue the story following my mom's successful second surgery, I'm going to be interviewing an individual about their thoughts on some of the questions I have revolving around religion in these moments. This is Religion and Other Themes. And just FYI, there aren't really any other themes in this episode, but I figured if you called something religion, it might seem overwhelming. So, here we go. So I'm Reverend Leah Roberts Moser, um, and I was born and raised in Jasper, Indiana. I've been a clergy person now for 12 years, um, and I've served the church that I serve now for seven years. So I'm the lead pastor of Community United Church of Christ, in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a Justice with Peace, theologically progressive, LGBTQIA open and affirming congregation of the United Church of Christ located in the heart of the University of Illinois. We're the church with the rainbow flags and the peace and justice flags and the coexist flags on it. So that's who I am. Oh, Uh and I'm married and I have kids. (laughs) Yeah. That's good. And my my husband's pastor, too. This is Leah. The first thing I want to talk about today is my own bias against religion. 
As I said earlier, not belonging to a Christian religion and a heavily Christian community really made me and my family feel like outsiders. We didn't have that extra layer of community that going to church brings. I always felt like my mom was judged more critically because she didn't belong to a church. So when she got divorced and went through her troubles, she couldn't just write it off as a sin on Sunday and still look like a good church-going girl. When I started to plan for my mom's funeral, I purposely planned not to have a service. I'm not sure what that even would have looked like. It's bizarre that Christian traditions are so ingrained in me from growing up that I don't even know what a secular funeral would be or if it was allowed. Of course it is. All this is to say that as time passed, I distanced myself further and further from the church and the people who associated themselves with it because it didn't seem like a place I could find common ground. But something I didn't think about till recently is how belonging to a religion doesn't prevent you from also feeling like an outsider. Obviously, I recognized that if you don't practice a Christian faith in this country, it's rough, like this proposed ban on Muslims. But the idea of intersectionality says that all parts of our identity, from our gender, to our sexuality, to our race, to our socioeconomic status, and to our religion, matter in how we are socially perceived. It means that I have to recognize that even the denomination of Christian you are matters in that. But I grew up going to Trinity United Church of Christ, which is um, one of the Protestant, mainline Protestant churches in town. Um, and my parents were art teachers, and they weren't from there. So, you know, the thing, um, I think the thing that people have to, have to know um, whenever they're thinking about our hometown is that um, if you're not from there, if you don't have generations of people from Jasper, and, and in some ways if you're not Catholic, um, then you're an outsider. And my parents were art teachers and so, and artists, so we, we were outsiders in a, in a lot of ways. I grew up going to Trinity and um, went to church camp, which, is a, which was a really important part of my life. Because um, I was definitely not one of the popular people um, at school, but like everybody's a prom queen at church camp, and so um, I, like at camp, I've really finally understood what it meant to be part of a Christian community and what it means to be in community with people um, and to include people in radical kind of ways. And I discerned a call to ministry. Um, when I was about 16 or 17 um, at that camp, sitting in the gymnasium, like taking in this big breath of like stale sweat sock air, generations of stale sweat sock air and looking up at this um, glass block window and it was like this little, this little light bulb went off in my head and it was like, ding, you're supposed to be a minister. Um, but when you grow up in a town where there's only one female clergy person, and she's the associate pastor at your church. And you grow up in a town with all of these people who, who just believe that women should not be clergy because they're Catholic. Um, that that was really an uphill battle for me. Right. Um, but um, thank God for feminist liberation theology. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, which is what I learned at Hanover College. I don't know what Mike Pence learned at Hanover College, but I learned feminist liberation theology. Um, and it really saved me. 
It's people like Leah that made me see that my personal efforts in putting up a wall between religion and myself were not productive. That there were people who felt just as much like outsiders as I did not belonging to a religion. Who felt different because of their womanhood or their sexuality, or just their sheer passion for their religion even within the church. To me, this meant I was being just as narrow-minded about who I thought could make religion part of their lives as others thought about my sexuality or about my mom or about my family's choices. Sometimes as someone who's, who has, is kind of like an agnostic person, yeah. but also, you know, an extreme activist, it's very easy to attack religion. And I've done that in the past in very unproductive ways. And I think... I'm just now starting as as a, as a more adult and mature person to understand that like my activism can't exist without the inclusion of of religion and the people who um in which in whatever way manifest their religion into their lives and that's something like I told you in the message that like I think that bias still comes out at times and yeah. trying to always address it and I think I'm no different than you know the person who you know thought one way about a gay person because of their religion and then you know needed to take the time to say actually I was wrong I, I wasn't being inclusive I wasn't being educated on on God's relationship to this issue and I think I have to be understand that me not, you know, not maintaining my agnosticism within my personal space and allowing freedom of religion <laughs> to in mm-hmm. my, like, professional space um, yeah. is just as important as the reverse when it comes to someone who daily, you know, someone who's trying to use it in what seems to be more hate-driven rhetoric, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. mine could be seen as just as violent, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's something I know I have a lot of agnostic friends who, yeah. you know, are listening to this. And that's something that I think, when, especially after this election, yeah. when, when we're like, oh, um, you know, Democrats were perfect. Like, why did we lose? And it's like, no, we actually have a lot of liberal people still have a lot of issues they need to work through. And I think religious inclusiveness is something that that is a big part of that and a lot of, uh, and an easy way to kind of segregate people. Um, Well, and what's, um, what's so challenging about the thing that you just named is that, um, is that the Christian right has a very loud and powerful and well-funded voice in, in this country. Um, and their platform could not be further from from the religious tradition of which I am a part. And the, the picture of Jesus that they paint is not anything like, like the Jesus that I know. Um, and so what's always, what pisses me off about all of that is that, um, is that conservative Christians are not the only Christians that exist in this country, um, that there are plenty of us who are theologically progressive um, and who understand that um, human rights are um, 
um, they're not up for debate, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that um, and that the work of the work of creating a peaceful and just filled world, um, like that's not something that is just up to um, up to activists. It's it's up to like that's that's the work of the gospel, um, as far as I as far as I read it. And besides that, um, so many, um, so many activists, so many people who, um, who literally changed the course of history because of the way that they toppled structures of power. Um, so many of those folks did that out of a basis of, of their faith. Mm Um, you know, I think, I think especially, um, right now in, in this particular moment in history, it's important for us to go back and to and to pay attention to um, the civil rights movement um, in the last century in this country, and to see how it was that that faith was an incredibly important part of that movement. It's a good point. When LGBTQ Pride Month happens around the country, churches are some of the only safe spaces that a community can offer. Religion has been a major driving force for a lot of people to fight for equality. I've started to see more clearly the ways that I was using religion to fight my own agenda, to make religion feel distant from myself by chalking it up as a conservative platform to spread hate, which simply isn't true. Around the time of my mom's shooting, I was just starting to reflect on my exclusiveness of religion, trying to confront my own biases. So when I found myself praying that morning in the hospital, it was a weird thing for me to grasp why I was doing it as an agnostic person. And then to find out moments later that my mom was going to be okay. And for a moment, I believed that my prayers had been answered. What was this happening with me? Moment when, okay, don't laugh at me. It's that moment when the Care Bears all hold hands, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that thing on their chest, which symbolizes the very essence of who they are, Oh my God, the Care Bears are so theological. Like that thing lights up and they are yelling, we care and like directing all of their energy towards one thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's something, there's, there's something about moments of crises and about tragedy um, that, that light up that very essence of who we are. And and we have to do something with that because we feel so helpless and we feel so alone um, that 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 essence of who we are gets directed outside of us. Um, and for people, um, for people who have a really clear sense of a clear construct of how how they are in relationship to the rest of the universe, um, then, then that gets, that gets put in the container of praying. And so my words and thoughts and actions get directed to the thing which is bigger than me, um, which is, people have lots of names for that, a higher power, God. Um, for, um, for agnostics or for atheists, I hear them say that they do the same thing. 
Um, but what that structure looks like and where that gets directed, I don't know because I don't know. Like I was, uh, I was an atheist for maybe a day and a half in college, and then I wasn't anymore. Um, I don't, I don't real, I don't have a firsthand experience of 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 what that is like. So why don't you tell me, like when you were doing that, what did that look like? What did that feel like? Did you feel like a Care Bear? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel. I mean, it, it's a it's a really good. A, a really good image because I mean I mean if I could have like a magical thing on my stomach that would like change the outcome <laughs> of events that would be that would have been very useful at the time um yeah um and you know what that symbol would have been whether it would have been like a heart for love or like yeah. a brain for like knowledge or you know whatever you feel like is is your core kind of ideal um I don't know what that would have been for me. Probably a mix because I'm more complicated than a than a TV character. But um, <laughs> as, as aren't we all? Yeah. Um, I don't. Um, it just felt comforting. I think like that was. I I talk about it in the podcast that like I, I I mean anxiety is something that I deal with aside from this, but obviously it was heightened in the moment so like I had a really hard time trusting the closest people to me trusting like actual knowledge from like a nurse or a doctor like it all just felt like someone was lying to me and like not even in a way where I felt like I knew everything because I knew nothing but in a way that I felt like I was the only one who could actually know what was true or false and I think because I was internalizing all those emotions like I needed that I couldn't keep together I needed an outlet that wouldn't talk back to me almost if that makes sense like I could just kind of put everything out into the universe and someone wouldn't be like Tommy don't do that or Tommy that's not right or even Tommy that is right like it was it was just a, a really healthy way of me dealing personally with what I couldn't deal with with another physical human being. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's I think it's really interesting, and it's really interesting that you just said, um, you know, I I needed to put that out there to something that wouldn't talk back to me. Um, and we're I mean, here we are on December seventeenth. Um, for Christians, we're in the midst of the season of Advent, which is the the season of preparation before Christmas. And so we retell these sacred stories constantly during the season about how the birth of Jesus came to be. And in one of those stories, um, where we hear the prophet Isaiah quoted, and Isaiah um, talks about the Messiah coming and, and that his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, um, and that's, that's why it's so interesting to me that you said, you know, I just needed to, to say that something that, that wasn't going to show up with good advice and that wasn't going to show up to explain everything. And just something that wasn't going to say, Oh no, no, you need to think this way about this or that way about that, like the, the absolute 
different stories of Jesus in the Gospels are the one where he just shows up and he's with people. He's with people all the time. Um, and so that's, for me at least as a Christian, like that, that's why I'm a Christian and I, and I, I don't subscribe to a different religious tradition. It's because it's the being with people. It's, it's in that word, with. Um, that's where I see the face of God show up. It's about accompanying, walking with, not trying to change or alter or fix anything, but just showing up and being with people. Um, and, um, and sometimes I think Christians don't do that enough. Um, well, if anything, I think it, not in a moment, but in hindsight, at least brought me close, like, like I said, trying to overcome these biases that I, I definitely have gathered over the course of, you know, growing up in, in such a, a heavy religious community and then going off to a very non-religious university um, in New York. And that I feel like that's one of the first times in my, in my more adult life that I started to understand why someone would want a relationship with God or a higher power. Um, it's always been, I think I always had the judgment like, oh, if you, if you can't deal with your own issues, if you need some in my and from my perspective you need some like non-existent god to like talk to like you know maybe you should get better friends or you should you know find a, a confidant <laughs> um that was yeah. always kind of like what i would think and then i realized that you know there are a million and one situations that that call for not having you know that in-person relationship that even though it, I, I guess you know, God feels almost as present for some people as a person, but like you said, that sometimes we need to have that kind of alone time, that kind of spiritual time where we're putting everything in the universe with the idea that we, we just want to put it out to someone who isn't going to combat us um, yeah. in, in a positive or negative way. I think that's, I think that's almost like a unifying way of looking at religion. Once the doctors told the waiting room that my mom was going to be okay, we all cried in relief. Kelly, Jack, Brittany, and I called everyone we could. I updated Facebook like crazy. And we finally had something concrete to work against. They said she'd need to stay in the hospital about a week, then go through physical therapy, and then continue to monitor from there. We weren't out of the clear yet, but it was a road we finally were able to start driving down after being stuck for the last few days. A few hours later, they let us into the room to see her. She hadn't woken up yet and still looked pretty exhausted. But knowing she was going to be okay made me see a little golden ring around her, like an angel had taken over her soul to protect her. My mom always said she felt like her mom who passed away was always looking over her. Maybe she had been with her during this surgery. Or you know, maybe the doctor was just really good. Or. Maybe my mom's body was just really strong. Soon after posting that she was going to be okay, 
I got a lot of messages about the power of God, and one personal message from a close friend saying that I must now be able to see God's good. She knew I had slammed religion in the past and rejected any existence of God. While I was working on becoming more inclusive in my ideas, this was something I still didn't understand about those who believe in God. To me, what this person was saying was that God saved my mom, which means that they also have the power to save someone else. So why would God save my mom and not someone else in the hospital who died that night? Me praying to have a relationship with a higher power is something completely different than saying God saved my mom. Saying God saved my mom had so many implications. It undermined it that maybe the doctor was just really good at his job, or that my mom was just able to pull through on her own. It made God look almost like a psychopath who murders someone to teach lessons, but then saves others to teach those exact same lessons. How do those who follow a God reason with this? The, the question of theodicy comes up all the time. Um, and I think, so, um, theodicy is the, that's the question of God's role in the midst of evil in the world. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what part does God have to play in bad stuff happening in the world? And over and over and over again, um, when bad stuff happens, um, I mean, you know, like, uh, like I've heard you say, it's, it's the, it's the foxhole phenomenon. Are there, uh, the question of whether or not there are any atheists in foxholes, but, but also, um, but in addition to prayer, that's what I'm trying to say, in addition to prayer, people then also ask, why is this happening? Why did this happen? Um, and what's always interesting to me is that folks who don't have any frame of reference for asking that question start asking that question. Um, and that's where it gets complicated because, because the Christian right has such a powerful and overwhelming voice in this country that people who are not currently part of religious traditions, when bad stuff happens to them, um, and they then they arrive at the theodicy question because they're shoved into the middle of it because they don't have a choice because their whole world just fell apart. But then the um, the religious construct that they find themselves in the midst of is one that says that God is in control of every everything. Well, as a progressive Christian, I don't think that God's in charge of everything um, because that would make God a puppet master and that we're being yanked around. Um, that's not, that's not how God works in the world. Um, I do not think that God causes bad stuff to happen for some higher purpose so that you can like learn a lesson. But I do not think that, um, that God said, Hmm, what are we going to do today? I know, I know. Let's have Tommy's brother shoot his mom in the back with his ex-boyfriend's gun in a car in the Eastland Mall parking lot so that, um, I know, so that he can then, like, a couple of years later, have this conversation about God with Pastor Leah. That's a great idea. Oh my God, that's so ridiculous. That's so ridiculous. That's not, that's not what happened. But, I mean, and, but to that, people 
had said that to me almost like in a oh in a roundabout way. Crap, that's just not what happens. Yeah, because what I mean, getting into some of the other questions is like, yeah. um, which I have a lot on just this in general, but like, and what you just said, but yeah, like soon after when my mom pulled through, it's like, so I got a response from someone who was like kind of close to me and they're like, oh, like, I really hope you see the power of God now that he like allowed your mom to get through. And, and you can see this as like a lesson that he provided to you bringing you closer to him. And I was like, um, that's a little heavy handed. Like, I don't know if I wanted that, you know, like, <laughs> I feel like I maybe could have had a relationship with, with God outside of this needing to happen. And then like my, my, um, my friend Sarah would say is like, yeah, well, your mom pulled through, but what about, you know, the other, there was other people who were in the hospital that night for other industry, indis, uh, injuries who, you know, passed away with their families there. And it's like, so what, how do you, you know, how do you decipher that when it comes to God? And I, I like that you said that you don't believe that he is a, a puppet master, because I think that for a lot of agnostic and atheist people, I think that takes this, the, you know, nihilist ideals around God out of the picture because, uh, but, but a lot of, a, a lot of, especially like you said, like right Christians would, would promote him as that someone who is control of everything. When you see God in that, it's almost like more, it's almost less appealing to me because I'm like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to have a, a relationship with a God who you know, just kills people willy-nilly. Um. Or, um, or for some greater purpose. Right. I mean, that would make God a masochist. That makes no sense to me. And, well, and it just comes uh, from a, a huge place of privilege in that mm-hmm. it's really easy to think that the events happening around you that aren't happening happening to you stem from God wanting to show you a higher purpose. But, like, the people who are living in the trenches in that and whose war-torn country is right. a part of their everyday life, I, you know, it's not necessarily fair for them to think that that God is around for them to be the lesson and for you to be the, the person who receives the lesson, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so we can, we can think about this on on kind of a scale of extremes. At one end, God creates the world, um, not in seven days, by the way, that's ridiculous, um, but somehow, right, the, the, the world is set into, into being, um, and and then God just lets it float away, and there's no interaction between God and the world in which we live and creation. So on one end, we have that that extreme. On the other end, there's the idea that God created the world and that everything that happens is done because the hand of God put it into motion. And so everything happens for a reason. And and we are, we are destined to do particular things um, down to, like, what I drank the coffee I drank for breakfast this morning and, you know, the conversation that I'm going to have with my kid later today, like absolutely everything is pre-planned and everything happens for a reason. 
that's the other extreme. I don't think either of those extremes is are legit. Um, I think it's some kind of strange, mysterious combination of those things that I, I don't have a good answer to. Um, but um, but I think the main question there is what kind of power we believe God has. Um, and, and again, this, this idea that God's a puppet master and we're marionettes on strings, um, that kind of thinking falls apart pretty quickly. Because as you said, why is it that your mom pulled through but the person in the bed next to her didn't? Um, and if if we ascribe the power, the, the, the saving power to God in, in who lives and who dies in that kind of situation, then God is just cruel. Um, and a God who loves us, which is what we're told over and over and over and over again in the sacred stories, I just, I just don't think God would do that. Um, so, so then it's a question of what kind of power does God have? And again, Speaking, looking through the lens of Christianity, because I'm a Christian, a progressive Christian, um, I think God's a change agent, and God is able to transform things. For me, that's what the that's what the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is all about. That over and over and over again, awful things happen in the world. And God's able to transform those things, to take those things, which otherwise would be trash, and transform them into saving things. And I don't mean saving like, like you die and here's your ticket to heaven, you're saved. No, I mean like saving as in, as in this is the thing that is saving me right now, that's giving me hope and help and renewal. The thing that's transforming my indifference into love. Um, that that's the way that I think God works in the world. Um, there's a lot of mystery in the world. I, I have no idea why it is um, that your mom lived and the person, you know, down the hall in another room died in that hospital. But, um, but I know now, and like what I see now happening is that is that you were able to then take that experience and and combine it with like that stuff that's at the very core of who you are and change it into something that's going to be a gift to the world and I see the hand of God in that I like this I think this way of thinking makes even the most skeptical agnostics reason with how one can accept religion into their lives and still not see God as the ultimate hand in their own life. God actually becomes more godly in my eyes if they are seen as having less control. It means that our actions actually do matter, the good and the bad. That God made us free agents to learn and to grow, and that the answer for everything can't be blamed on God, but that we have to take responsibility to figure out our own path in the world. Saying that God has a plan is just simply not a realistic answer for everything. It means everything is definite and already decided. It closes people's minds. 
and makes one way seem better than all the rest. I feel better knowing that I can take my own path, and that God is there to shape things that I touch, and that my touch could be just as powerful as God's, that I actively can participate in my own free will to do things, good things, not because God made me do them or told me I should, but because I found the beauty and humanity compelling enough to do it myself. Wouldn't God want us to trust that they made people inherently good enough to make good choices, and that our bad choices help us learn, not as a sin, but as a perfectly necessary failure to move us along in life? This is something I can get behind. As I sat with my mom hours after her surgery, waiting for her to wake up, I realized I could scrap all the prep work I did for her funeral. Good to know I could easily plan for death when it finally does come around. But you know, for now, I was happy to toss all my hard work away. Instead, a new reality hit me. The doctor mentioned a week or longer in the hospital and physical therapy after that. My mom's job of cleaning houses was a fully physical job. She lived paycheck to paycheck. How on earth was this going to work? Even the money I had saved would only last a few months with my bills and hers together. We didn't have any significantly rich family members, and my mom was just getting freed from debt. She hadn't even finished Christmas shopping yet, and she wanted to take the kids to Disney World next year for a family vacation. I had to find a way to make it all work out. Having a great background in crowdfunding from doing creative projects, I got a GoFundMe going with the goal of $5,000. What I started to get though was, we are praying for you or sending prayers, as if prayers equaled something physical. We needed help. We needed groceries. We needed car rides for the kids. We needed a lot. of a body who touched people's 
bodies and who um, and who is with people. I don't think we can just, you know, focus our little Care Bear chest intentions towards goodness, but that we have to do something. Um, um, I think that also takes a lot of intention and coordination and, um, you know, we, um, we, we do this all the time as a church. Um, you know, somebody has a life crisis and we rally all the troops and we circle the wagons and we make sure that people have car rides and meals and, um, you know, babysitters if they need that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, this crisis happens in the world. We take up a, a special collection and send that to agencies that know what they're doing, right? It doesn't help for all of us to go, oh, these people need X, Y, and Z, and then send them things that they don't need. Um, I think I, th- I think it's important to follow up with action. And the worst thing that you can do for people in crisis is to say, well, if you need anything, let me know. Because I've been with, you know, at this point in my career, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families who are in crisis. And when they're in the middle of crisis, they can't, they don't know what they need. And so, so you need folks who have those skills to be able to walk in and say, hi, we can offer these things. What do you need? And then, uh, you know, of these things. And then folks who can organize that and help. It's important. Right. It's necessary. Yeah, and what I will and, say... Oh, go ahead. And, I mean, there are so many resources. Like, this is the thing. Um, this myth of scarcity, it, it drives me batty. Um, there's plenty, absolutely plenty, to go around. We just have to quit being greedy and share it. I knew we'd get about $1,000 just from my friends and hers. But friends started to donate more than I expected. Then minor acquaintances contributed more than I thought. Then strangers joined in. Overnight, we had reached nearly half our goal. Most, but not all of course, of the prayers were actually followed up by action. We got groceries, volunteers. People asked what I needed. A local church we didn't even associate ourselves with paid our bills for a month and gave us resources for how to get assistance in the future. The outsiderness I always felt plagued myself and my mom seemed to disappear. Despite what I had said about religion in the past, these people came out for us. I felt loved by my hometown for the first time in a long time. I saw the good, and it warmed my heart. But I warn, and I agree with what we said before, that prayers must always be followed up for everyone around the world. Syrians are being displaced. Cities are being bombed. These places need real physical help too, not just prayers. With extreme generosity, my family met the $5,000 goal, and people continued to pour out support in other ways. I honestly couldn't believe it, and it took so much stress off me and my entire family. I can never thank the people enough who were there for us. But something I want to make clear, help does not exonerate you in the future. Several months after the shooting, some of the same people who donated posted terrible rhetoric in the name of Donald Trump and hateful words associated with the LGBTQ community and communities of color. I called these people out on their godliness, and they reminded me of what they did for my family. Unfortunately, 
I don't see that as an excuse to turn a blind eye. While I desperately wanted help for my family, I want just as much help for other people in the world. I do not respect those who donate to white families, but do not extend the same levels of respect to black families. Charity and service should be universal, and no amount of money you give me or my family will change that view. We all need to work on ensuring our prayers, our support, and our money reach all people in every circumstance. I mean, I think, I think what's really fascinating about this particular moment in history in which we are living in um, is that progressive churches, um, progressive churches have real work to do in this, in this time. And so those places are, those places are out there. Um, and, um, you know, you just have to, you just have to look. Um, I, I don't think that they're in, I don't think they're in every community, but, um, but they are out there. And I, um, I also think it's important that folks do their homework. If you've been deeply wounded by religious institutions, it's probably not good self-care for you to just walk in and be like, hi, I'm here, love me, um, because, you know, what, what if they are one of those churches that say, we welcome everybody, oh, but secretly we, we're not okay with you being gay, like, that, that's, that's not, that won't be helpful um, to people personally, so um, doing a bit of your homework and always reaching out to pastors and saying, you know, this is what I'm looking for in a church, tell me, tell me whether or not this is who you are, or if there's a place for me here. Um, pastors are always willing to answer those kind of questions. Now, let's not forget this podcast is about a shooting. The Constitution gets brought up a lot in gun law arguments, and the Bible gets brought up in a lot of constitutional arguments. We don't live in a theocracy, but we can't ignore that the Bible is a guiding light for people and their political values. So what would God say about guns and mass shootings and the death rates associated with accidental shootings. Yeah. Um, so, so again, from my place, from my worldview as a progressive Christian, um, I just do not think that um, that the God who bothered to show up in the flesh in the most vulnerable of ways, um, you know, as a, as a baby born to a teenage mother who was poor, who didn't have a roof over their heads at the time, who then became refugees, um, who then was, uh, who, who lived in an occupied land, uh, who dealt with everyday horrific violence um, and who was falsely accused and um, and then put to death by the state and who lived in brown skin in this world. I just do not think that that God <laughs> bothered to do all of that in the service of the mighty and the gun lobby in this country is the mighty. And I think it's sinful and wrong in every possible way. Um, 
we are not living in the fucking zombie apocalypse. There is no reason for people to have so many guns and so many guns that can fire at, at such rapid succession. Um, you know, there's there's no good reason for that except for except for the way that we get for the way that we get off on power and the way that guns make people feel powerful. Um, and that's wrong. I think that's absolutely wrong. If you asked me today, I'd say I'm agnostic. I don't pray, I don't go to church, but I've realized a lot about who I am as a religious person. I learned that the faith I need is a universe to speak out into, not to God, but into the air, the earth, the space. I need to put my thoughts beyond physical human beings and let my thoughts exist without response. I need that. I can't tell someone else that they don't need to do the same thing, but to a God they believe in. I still have biases. I still critique those who I feel use religion as a platform to harm others. But through this experience, I saw the parallels between the things I thought I was doing non-denominationally in my life, and realized that actually what I do is just as much of a religion as anything else. With that, I find common ground. And with that, I start to forget the judgments I've placed before. When my mom finally woke up from the surgery, all she wanted was to get a tube out of her mouth. With it in, she couldn't talk, even though she was fully capable. We asked, hour after hour, if she could get it out, with no luck. While Kelly, Jack, Brittany, and I sat near my mom, my brother Derek had landed from Japan. Greg and Jane were going to bring him and the rest of my siblings back down later in the day. Now that she was okay, I could tell attitudes were starting to change. Death was no longer part of the equation. I wasn't in control anymore. I would no longer get the respect you get when people think your mom is going to die. And when the nurse walked in and took out my mom's tube that night, my mom could finally say whatever she wanted. And boy, was there a lot to say. Shot is written and produced by me, Tommy Craven, with editorial help this week again from Sarah Berry. A big thank you to Leah Roberts-Moser for her interview and insight this week. Much love and respect. Music is provided from Summer Underground. Their latest album, More Than Her Friend, Less Than a Lever, is currently available on Spotify and iTunes. Their song, Lever Where Are You, is our theme music for season one. Check them out. Additional music this week provided by Liza St. John from the St. John Sisters, filmmaking friends of mine who are currently releasing their newest short film, Cargo. See the trailer at cargoshortfilm.com. Shot will be taking two weeks off for the holidays and to prep for the remainder of the episodes. A lot of good stuff is coming up, and I look forward to sharing it with you. Happy holidays to everyone that's listening. Please go to iTunes to rate and review the podcast. I'm also gearing up for season two. If you know someone who has been a victim of an accidental shooting and has a story to share, please email me at tommy at tommycraven.com. The next episode is titled Fucked Up People and will be available in the coming weeks.